This is Cultured Hollywood for Smart People for Tuesday, September 15th, 2020. I am Nico and I'm your host. And we're talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them. Fresh off an NFL weekend. Week one of the NFL season. As if COVID never happened. Here we are. I'm winning 15 to 1 parlays. I'm winning fantasy leagues. If only my actual NFL franchise, the New York Jets, performed like I did over the weekend, uh, it would be a much happier Tuesday. But no, uh, we can't have everything. (laughs) Dashing good looks, superior intellect, and a successful NFL franchise. We can't have them all. I will take two out of three podcast listeners. Um, NFL weekend. That's not what we're here to talk about. We are here to talk about the business of show. And boy, is there a lot of news in that department this week. Not always the greatest news, not always the easiest news to discuss on a podcast, but lots of controversy, debate, Um, You know, it's one of those weeks where the world of politics and the world of Hollywood have uh, collided head on. And those are never the funnest of times, but they are certainly the most interesting of times. So let's begin with this cuties thing. Uh, (laughs) I hate these stories. I hate that I have to lead with this. But here we are yet again. And we're talking about depiction versus endorsement. And, uh, you know, we did this with Joker. Uh, We did this with The Hunt. Hell, in the past, we've done it with Quentin Tarantino movies, with Stanley Kubrick movies, with Woody Allen movies. It never ends. Depiction versus endorsement. This is a concept that neither side of the political spectrum can grasp. And I cannot understand for the life of me what is so difficult about this. Just because a film depicts a bad behavior doesn't mean the filmmaker endorses said behavior. Goodfellas does not endorse the Lufthansa heist. Scarface does not endorse snorting cocaine and murdering people with a machine gun. Silence of the Lambs does not endorse cannibalism. I do not understand why we continue to do this. Why we continue to have these debates in bad faith. We're doing it again with a stupid Netflix movie called Cuties. Which, by the way, and don't think you're slick, because I know you ain't. Nobody online watched this movie. Actually, I'll tell you what. One person online watched this movie. Exactly one. And that person is Nico. I'm the only one that watched this movie. I'm on your letterboxd accounts. I'm reading your diaries. I'm looking at your tweets. Y'all didn't watch this movie. I took the bullet and I watched this shitty independent French movie. I'm that asshole. I did it so you didn't have to. This movie is not even good enough to be debating. It's not. It does not deserve this level of intellectual vigor enough anyway uh so what is cuties what's all the hubbub about uh cuties is a netflix movie debuted at sundance earlier this year out of france it won an award at sundance netflix acquired the rights 
uh, put the film on its platform last week. But the thing has been mired in controversy for a good month now, ever since the poster for Cuties was released as part of Netflix's promotional material. The poster um, depicted its main characters, these young 11 to 12 year old girls in sexually suggestive positions, scantily clad outfits on the stage of a dance competition. The movie is sort of a coming of age story about uh, four young girls in this dance group that call themselves the cuties um, who, uh, you know, dance in very sexually suggestive routines in order to win a prize at a dance contest. Um, The poster came out instantly received backlash online from both sides of the aisle. I would say it it was more a right leaning, uh, Uh, controversy than a left-leaning controversy nonetheless both sides of the aisle were you know in a state of dismay over this poster netflix eventually took down that art replaced it with uh less suggestive art but you can still see that poster online if you look for it um and they assured the uh the audience at home that the movie does not reflect um the values depicted in that poster whatever that means as bad as you think the poster is the movie's not quite that bad fine a couple weeks later the movie comes out and this clip goes viral it's from the end of the film uh and it shows these four girls actually five girls i think um on the stage twerking gyrating uh spreading their legs and uh you know getting their cardi b on immediately the clip gets picked up by mostly right-wing outlets not entirely but it's mostly right-wing publications talking about this Uh, i think tucker carlson does a segment on it on fox news ted cruz tweets about it donald trump jr tweets about it other conservative figures um, and the argument made here is that the film cuties and the clip shown on social media is evidence of Hollywood's obsession with sexualizing underage girls. And I guess what's implied here, if not explicitly stated, is a predilection towards pedophilia. Um, this clip was meant to, I don't know, demonstrate that the executives at Netflix their friends in the greater Los Angeles area. I'm not really sure who the target here is, but just Hollywood is full of pedophiles. That's the message, I guess. So, okay. Very heavy stuff here. We're talking pedophilia. These are some harsh allegations, some Epstein-esque allegations here flung in Netflix's direction. Netflix, I should note, has uh, not done anything in response to these attacks the movie is still on the platform. I believe it's in the top 10 on Netflix's uh, homepage. I, it doesn't look like Netflix is going to do anything about this. The movie is just going to remain on the service undisturbed. Internationally, I'm not sure. But at least in the United States, it's up there. And uh, I think they're waiting for the controversy to pass. <sighs> so, okay. Again, I watched the movie. I watched the movie last night. No one else watched the movie except for me, but I watched it and here are my thoughts. It's not that good. Uh, It's kind of boring. It's very on the nose. The social commentary um, is uninspired. And although I understand what the filmmaker was going for, um, 
I, I don't think that this movie is worth the amount of criticism it, it has received. You know what I mean? Like there are bigger fish to fry if you are a right wing publication looking to expose Hollywood's hypocrisy. You know what I'm saying? So that's thought number one. The movie is not that good. Thought number two. Um, the movie is actually fairly conservative. And again, if you had seen the film, you would understand that this movie is satirizing and poking at um, society's obsession with sexualizing young girls. Um, it, it, it's trying to expose the type of material that little girls are exposed to at a young age because of the internet, the pornography that's available for mass consumption at the age of 10 or 11. Uh, I just mentioned Cardi B. I mean, something like WAP, uh, wet ass pussy, although funny and amusing for 25 year olds is not something that you want to be showing an eight year old. And, uh, the movie makes a pretty compelling argument that, parents should be monitoring the material that their children are sharing with each other at school. So kind of conservative in that direction. Also the depiction of the Islamic faith in this movie feels like right out of the mind of Glenn Beck, you know? (laughs) And and that's what I can't get over. Like, I I don't know the origins of this filmmaker, the uh, French woman, Maimwana Decore, I believe that's how you pronounce her name. She wrote and directed the movie. Um, I, I don't know if she comes from Islamic heritage. I don't know what religion she grew up with. This feels like a pretty personal biographical movie. Um, and so I imagine that she has at least some experience with the tradition and the teachings of Islam. Um, but the movie does make an argument that the Islamic faith and their attitude toward women causes young girls to rebel at a young age, um, you know, it's just sort of this idea that religion and tradition and uh, sexual oppression over the years leads to more rebellion later on in life. Um, it, you know, this just feels like a very conservative argument. And I would be surprised if some conservative, uh, either politicians or commentators, watched the movie and didn't pick up on that as well. Uh, I, I would be actually very curious to see what Donald Trump Jr. would think of the movie or what Ted Cruz would think of the movie if they actually watched it. Um, Because, yeah, I I think the politics are a little messier and a little more complex than either side of the political aisle, frankly, is willing to admit. Um, So, yeah, surprisingly conservative. That's my second takeaway. Third takeaway, it's a French movie. It's a French movie. It's from France. It's French. The home of Gaspar No. <laughs> Guys, why are we using this film to smear Hollywood? Why are we putting it under the umbrella of Hollywood? This is not a Hollywood production. Not every movie is a Hollywood production, you know. There are industries and there are cities that are known for producing film all across the world. It's a French movie. And if you know anything about French film, if you're like me and you've sat through movies like Irreversible, if you've sat through movies like Martyrs, you would understand that the French are known to provoke. The French are known to push the boundaries. This is the home of Francois Truffaut, of Jean-Luc Godard, of Agnes Varda. French New Wave, motherfuckers. 
<laughs> Man, if you were clutching your pearls over that cuties clip, do I have a doozy of a homework assignment for you? Do I have a laundry list of European cinema to expose you to this weekend? Man, try a Lars von Trier film out on a Saturday afternoon. Pop that in for date night. Try Antichrist. Try Irreversible. Try a Serbian film. Try Solo or the 120 Days of Sodom. <laughs> Those Europeans, they, they get down different. All right? These Europeans are on a whole new level. You have to understand this. They're always pushing the boundaries, and that's not meant to endorse any of the films I just listed. I actually hate every single one of them. And I find some of them to be morally reprehensible. But, like, that's Europe. European cinema is, in many ways, like, boundary-pushing and monumental and crucial to the development of American cinema, but it is also known for going places that American audiences will not go. So I I, I don't understand how this clip, even if we're to take it at its face value and say this movie, Cuties, explicitly endorses the sexualization of children, even if we go there, I don't know how it's evidence of any Hollywood practices this is a European joint. And this is an issue that you got to take up with the EU. All right. <laughs> Here's the bottom line. Um, no, I do not believe the movie Cuties uh, endorses pedophilia. I don't believe that the movie Cuties was made to glorify the, uh, the, uh, the young bodies of adolescents it was not meant to sexualize any of the main characters. If anything, the movie argues explicitly against that practice. Um, I do think that the clip, although shocking and although provocative and uh, in some ways very disturbing, was intentionally made that way. And that is often the purpose of film. I think it's almost always the purpose of film is to provoke and to question and to, uh, you know, sometimes disgust and sometimes dismay the audience. Now, here is the argument that I will hear. And this is where I actually will agree with the likes of Ted Cruz or the likes of Donald Trump Jr. or whoever else is tweeting about the movie Cuties this week. Um, Depiction versus endorsement. We understand that. It's very clear. The movie is not endorsing pedophilia. But film is not just an artistic medium. Film is also a corporate venture. It's also a business. It's also an act of employment. Um, and that's where this stuff gets messy. Because it's one thing to say that the movie is glorifying the sexualization of children. And it's another thing to say that the five girls that starred in this movie have been exploited sexually. And that is an argument that I think I'll hear. You know, sometimes you have to take the macro and shrink it down to the micro. And we have to take these things on a case by case basis. And we understand the intention of the movie, but we also understand that in order to make a movie about children, you have to cast real children. And that's where this movie might go too far. Not as an act of art, but as an act of employment. And if we are, uh, you know, in 2020, trying to foster um, 
a productive and a safe workplace for actors, well, children better be at the top of that list. And I, I do think when I see that clip and, you know, I, I, I'm not clutching my pearls in the way that a lot of commentators are because, you know me, I'm a free speech nut. I do think to myself, oh, why did their parents agree to this? You know what I mean? Why did these showbiz parents allow these girls to be cast in this film? And I, and I do think, like, it's one thing if you write this in a novel. Like, if you write Lolita, Lolita was a major controversial uh, piece of art many decades ago. Um, and to this day, like, there is still, uh, you know, a, a little bit of controversy when you teach Lolita in 10th grade English class. But, you know, that book is one thing. There are no actual victims when you write that book. It's just a thought crime at that point. Filmmaking is different. Filmmaking is collaborative. Filmmaking is physical. Filmmaking requires uh, real people to play imaginary roles, but those real people are still being exploited even if they're behind the veil of whatever character they're playing. And uh, that's what I felt a little dirty about. So while I don't necessarily think this subject matter is off limits for, say, a novel or a stage play, it might be off limits for film. Because in order to cast these parts, you have to put real children in front of the camera. It's not a matter of art. It's a matter of employment. It's a matter of the workplace. And that's where I feel icky. That's where I feel gross. No, I don't think this movie is endorsing the sexualization of young children. I don't think it reflects poorly on Netflix for putting the movie on their service. I don't necessarily think the movie should be taken down, but I do see at least where the seed of this controversy began. I do see the moral outrage behind putting young girls in front of the camera, having them twerk in scantily clad outfits. I get it. It's gross. It's icky. Those French fucks like to go there a lot of the time. But please let us not conflate depiction with endorsement. This isn't evidence of Hollywood's obsession with pedophilia. This just ain't it, man. Okay? Ted Sarandos has not been to Jeffrey Epstein's island. And I don't imagine he'll be there anytime soon. Or anybody, for that matter. Let's hope not. Uh, This is Cultured. We're talking more politics after the break. Stick around. All right. Uh, here we are again, dancing on the political minefield. Um, <laughs> politics and culture forever tied at the hip. God help us all. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the Oscars, shall we? I know they're a long ways away and, uh, you know, we may never see the 2021 Oscars at this rate. And between you and me, that may be a good thing. Um, But the Oscars continue to announce new changes to their policy this week. New inclusion standards for the best picture category. This is the first of many efforts to uh, promote more diverse nominees amongst all categories. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has been attempting to do this dating all the way back to 2014 when they first received criticism for no black nominees in the best actor or actress categories. Um, they have tried in recent years to include more minority groups in the actual voting body. This was thought to be um, a, uh, a a significant effort. And I will say, you look at the 
last couple best picture winners. I know Green Book being the exception, but Moonlight, Parasite, I, I think this is evidence of something. You know, I think it's working. We have seen more surprising nominees and more surprising winners at the Oscars over the past few years. And as much as guys like me like to complain about it, it is getting better. I do think the idea of a an Oscar bait movie, of an award season movie, is changing. Um, and, you know, you still see 1917 cleaning up in the technical categories. And you still see, uh, you know, movies like Joker and movies like Green Book having great success on Oscar night. But, you know, I don't know. This is certainly a more diverse group of winners than uh, than was the case in 1995 when I was born. So, okay. Inclusion standards. Great. Awesome. Fantastic. Who doesn't like diversity? We all do, right? Well, not all of us, but most of us do. Uh, here's the latest effort. It is set to uh, take effect in 2025, after God knows how many pandemics. Like, it's just funny to me that you all think we're getting to 2025. That's good. You're actually thinking about what the Oscars will look like five years from now. Okay. Um, But between now and then, uh, if you want to compete for Best Picture, you have to meet two out of four of the following criteria. On-screen representation creative leadership, industry access, and audience development. Two out of these four categories must meet diversity requirements. And we can go through every single one of them. Uh, I I won't. I will just say broadly, on-screen representation, who is cast in the movie, creative leadership is who is either directing the movie, shooting the movie, designing the costume for the movie, all of those technical categories. Industry access uh, involves, I guess, internships and employment. Um, And audience development is whoever's at the top, whoever is employed at the studio, who's ever producing the movie, who's ever distributing the movie. You have to meet two out of four of those diversity requirements to even be considered for best picture. Um... And, uh, you know, here's the thing. I have complicated thoughts on affirmative action. Um, and I won't go into the specifics now because it's not only a boring conversation, but it's not the type of conversation I enjoy having on this show. Um, and I don't necessarily see this as sort of an overwhelming um, act of affirmative action. You know, it's not like they're requiring one black man in the best actor category, one woman in the best director category. It's not that overreaching. And so if we're going to set diversity standards, I'm okay with something like this. As long as Joe Pesci is still included in the best supporting actor category, you know, (laughs) I'm okay with it. If you exclude Joe Pesci from the proceedings, your diversity rules have gone too far. But as long as you can find room for Pesci, I'm fine with it. Um, Look, here's the point. One of the main criticisms I've heard online, and I think it's a fair one, is that the Oscars should not be in the business of dictating how movies are made. They should simply evaluate the movies that were already made. They're supposed to be an impartial body that simply judges the product in front of them. Um, And I've you know, made a similar argument in the past. What I've always said is, if you want to complain about diversity, 
at the Oscars, don't talk to the Academy. Talk to the studio executives. It's not about who's getting nominated. It's about who's getting those parts in the first place. There is not much for the Academy to work with. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they're not really in the business of dictating who gets cast in the lead, who is the cinematographer on a particular project, and they probably shouldn't have that sort of power, but they already do. You know what I'm saying? They already do. They're already dictating the film release schedule. There's a reason why every single Best Picture nominee comes out between the months of September and December. They already dictate the kinds of movies made. There's a reason why studios invest X amount of dollars a year to war movies, X amount of dollars a year to period pieces, X amount of dollars a year to musical biopics, X amount of dollars a year to dramatic character studies. Because Oscar voters have not explicitly, but implicitly signaled what kinds of films they're interested in voting for. So the Oscars already dictate how movies are made, whether you like it or not. And I don't think these rules are going to change things all that much. The Irishman is still going to get nominated for Oscars. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is still going to get nominated for Oscars. Um, and I don't think an entire genre of movie, an entire breed of movie is going to be excluded because of these rules. Now, there are plenty of genres excluded for a variety of other reasons. This one ain't it, man. And I, I don't think this is a major, major problem um, from, an, from an Oscar fanatic's perspective. Now, if you want to quibble, and that's all I can do on this podcast is quibble. You know me. They call me the quibble king. Um, I, I do think some of these standards are a little unrealistic, and I'm happy that you only have to meet two out of four of them. Creative leadership... I'm cool with that. Industry access, I'm cool with that. Audience development, I'm cool with that. As I said in the previous segment, film is not only an artistic endeavor, it's an employment endeavor. And yeah, diverse workplace. Nothing wrong with that. But that on-screen part, that on-screen standard, this is what's always bugged me about the Oscar diversity debate. Acting is a strange profession. Casting is a strange profession. Performing is a strange profession. It is the only field of work where exclusion and discrimination is not only okay, it's a prerequisite. When you're casting an actor, oftentimes in the script, a certain race is required, a certain gender is required a certain height, a certain hair color, a certain demeanor, a certain age. You have to discriminate when you're casting for a movie because part of who that character is, the essence of the role is a person's identity. And with that, you have the good and the bad. If you write parts for minorities, there are a plethora of job opportunities automatically offered to minorities. But at the same time, if you're making a movie like 1917 about infantrymen in World War I, I mean, it's going to be mostly white men, if not exclusively white men. But in order to tell that story, you have to cast exclusively white men or else you're being disingenuous. There are plenty of films, independent and big studio films, that require a lack of diversity in order to articulate a certain theme, a certain point. And so 
you know, we look at these acting categories and we say, okay, no black nominees or maybe one or two black nominees in all four of the acting categories or, you know, no Asian, no Hispanic nominees, no women directors. It's not exactly the same thing. Not Oscar, not every Oscar category is created equal. Casting is different than cinematography. If you're a cinematographer of any race, of any ethnicity, of any gender, of any sexuality, if you're good, you're good. That's not the case with acting. Acting is a far different profession and casting should not be held to the same standard as other hiring practices. So, you know, I I think obviously it's important to cast minorities in leading roles when possible but there are just certain types of movies where it's not possible and it's it would be disingenuous. And, you know, if you're going to set diversity standards for on-screen representation only, I think now we have a problem at the Oscars. Now we have a problem. There has to be an exception made for acting, for live performing, for the theater, for, you know, whatever. The second you write someone's race on the casting call, you've discriminated against an entire section of the workforce. And we accept that because we understand that's what art is. That would be a measure too far. And I'm glad that you don't have to hit all four of these diversity standards in order to make the best picture category. So I'm okay with this. That's the bottom line. I'm fine with it. But I am skeptical. And I do think that this is more of a systemic issue than it is just an Oscar issue. But what do I know? This is Cultured. We're coming right back with more. Stick around. All right. You know how much I love saying I told you so. (laughs) You know me. I love taking bows. I love pats on the back, even if they're disingenuous. I'm a podcaster. What do you want? But believe me when I say I take no pleasure this week dancing on the graves of movie theaters. I take no pleasure in nailing this prediction. Tenet bombed. And it bombed hard. And the movie going process as we know it is now dead. And it pains me. It kills me. Because I love going to the movies. It's my favorite activity. My entire life it's been a sanctuary. And I would love nothing more than to go to the theater this weekend with a group of friends to see the latest summer tentpole, to see the latest Oscar bait movie this fall. And I've been twice and I enjoyed it, but it's ending. It's dead. It's gone. And it's not coming back. As much as I want to believe in the magic of that dark, smelly room with popcorn on the ground, soda stains on the recliners, screaming children to your left, hormonal teenagers to your right. It's a beautiful thing, but no, folks. Come to grips with it. Tenant made $20 million its opening weekend, $6 million the following weekend. It's over. Christopher Nolan movies are not supposed to make less than $40 million its opening weekend. That's a rule. It's a law. I'm not even talking about the Batman movies. Interstellar made 46. Dunkirk made 50. $20 million is abhorrent. It's disgusting. 
It's a bomb. This movie is a bomb with a capital B. And it's not a bomb in the way that The New Mutants is a bomb. Like, that's a bad movie that got poor reviews that Disney wanted nothing to do with. They buried it the first weekend theaters reopened. Most theaters in the country were still not open at that point. There were no advertisements on television. There were very few advertisements on YouTube. Like, we understand why New Mutants didn't do well. That's an understandable bomb. That is a write-off in Disney's checkbook. No, not Tenet. Tenet's a Christopher Nolan movie that got decent critical reception, that had a massive advertising campaign behind it. If you watched NBA basketball over the past two months, you definitely saw a few Tenet ads. There's not a single person that's not living under a rock that didn't know Tenet was coming out Labor Day weekend. Like, people were aware, and they chose not to go. That's the bottom line here. Six million dollars its second weekend. Not only did it not receive positive word of mouth, like dudes just chose to stay home. And it's important to put this into context, of course. New York, Los Angeles, the two largest film markets closed. Can't see a movie in Los Angeles unless it's a drive-in. Can't see a movie in New York unless you hop on the train to Connecticut. So... It's important to put that into context, but still, this movie was in 2,800 theaters this past weekend. It earned $2,300 per screen. That's embarrassing. You know, this is Heaven's Gate embarrassing. This is a major studio bomb. This is the type of shit Christopher Nolan is not supposed to recover from. If we're under any other circumstances, like Christopher Nolan is never working again. Like that's how bad this bomb is. And Warner Brothers can spin it however they want. Oh, it's doing so well overseas. $200 million globally in 48 countries. Mostly countries that are not dealing with coronavirus anymore. But listen, they already pushed Wonder Woman to Christmas time. And Dune is about to be pushed as well. They can tell you whatever they want in their press release. They see the writing on the wall here. No major studio in their right mind would release a summer tentpole under these circumstances. And I'm telling you people, I don't know how you read this news and not think to yourself, this is the end of the theater going model as we know it. There is no other takeaway here. And I am sick of sugarcoating this. I am sick of reading the Hollywood Reporter or Variety spin this in any other way. Theaters are going away for good. Mulan was released on Disney Plus this weekend, and I'm sure it did just fine. Disney isn't reporting those numbers, but I guarantee you they made more money on Disney Plus than they would have ever made if Mulan came out in a theater. Put Wonder Woman on your streaming service. Put it on HBO Max. Put Dune on HBO Max. Sell the Quiet Place sequel to Netflix. Put all your Marvel movies. Put Black Widow on Disney+. Plus. It's over. 
It's over. 2,800 theaters. That's not a small number. This wasn't a limited release. This was still a wide release. Granted, we didn't have our two big markets. And granted, most theaters had to implement social distancing protocols. So you could only sell one ticket for every three seats in the movie theater. I get that. And when I went to the movies to see Tenant last week, I made note of how empty that theater was because of social distancing. So it's an uphill battle to begin with. And if you want to see this as, oh, once Corona's done, once the vaccine comes out in 2024, movie theaters will be fine. No. Grandma's not coming home. I've said this weeks ago. Pull the plug. And it pains me. It kills me. There is no person that's more upset about this than me. $26 million barf. 66% drop off week to week. All the cinephiles like me that wanted to go to the movies, we went to the movies last week to see Tenet. And then the crowd dried up. Because the average moviegoer, the average parent, the average child, no, doesn't want to mess around with the movies in the midst of Corona. And by the way, they've also gotten used to the old, the, sorry, the new way of doing things. They've gotten used to watching the latest release on Netflix. They've gotten used to it. They watched the Seth Rogen movie in American Pickle on HBO Max. They watched Palm Springs on Hulu. Now they're watching Cuties on Netflix. Sorry. Sorry. I'm just as upset about it as you. I am. This Corona thing was terrible for a number of industries. And this is one of many retail restaurants. They're all never going to be the same, but movie theaters telling you right now, I I made this prediction a few weeks ago. AMC is not going to be open in November. By November, the doors will be closed again. They may be bankrupt by then. I stand behind that prediction. This was the litmus test. New mutants was not that test unhinged. Starring Russell Crowe was not that test. Tenet was supposed to bring bodies to the theaters. It was supposed to do good numbers. It did abysmal. It's over. It's over. And there's no other way to read this news. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> wow. This has been cultured. Do I have some other uh, news items? Oh, yes, of course. Of course. Keeping up with the Kardashians canceled after 22 seasons on the E! Entertainment Network. Uh, You know, (laughs) the Kardashians. Uh, um, Look, I've talked about the Kardashians sparingly on this show. Because, uh, you know, it's just not my wheelhouse. I don't know much about them, and I'm still not sure what they do. Um, But, you know, there's something to be said about the Kardashian family. They are uh, pretty horrible people that exploit their lives um, for a a quick buck. And, you know, they sort of sullied the reputation of reality television, although that reputation was always (laughs) a bit troubled. Like, there are still good reality shows. There are still shows like Survivor and Top Chef that, uh, you know, deliver a high-quality product. And I think the Kardashians became the poster child for that entire genre of TV. And I don't think that's fair. But there is something to be said about Kim Kardashian 
and Kendall Jenner and Kylie Jenner and Kris Jenner making it on their own. There's something to be said about a royal family that was self-made. I often talk about them in relation to the British royal family. And I just find that entire practice to be disgusting and I don't understand it and I'll never understand it. Um, and, and perhaps like the members of the royal family, perhaps Queen Elizabeth is a more classy broad than Chris Jenner. But give me the Kardashians every day of the week, man. Give me the family that made something with their lives. That earned money through blood, sweat and tears that got where they got because they worked for it. Not a family that was handed royalty, that was handed a fortune because of their last name. You know what I mean? Give us the American royal family seven days a week and twice on Sunday. They're an imperfect family, but they're our family. And I'll miss the Kardashians. I don't know about you. (laughs) Something tells me, though, they're not going anywhere. Walking Dead also concluded its run or is going to conclude its run after its 11th season. But fear not, a Daryl and Carol spinoff is on the way. Um, you know, Look, I'm not going to mourn the cancellation of Walking Dead because Walking Dead's not done. Three spinoffs are going to be on the air at the same time on AMC. There's going to be more Walking Dead two years from now than there's ever been before. You know, this is uh, not Breaking Bad. This is not Mad Men. Initially, when Walking Dead debuted all the way back in 2010, I think we expected it to be AMC's horror prestige show. It was going to be Mad Men, but horror. Breaking Bad, but horror. Um, No, it's a piece of intellectual property that is being mined for all its parts, and uh, AMC will not rest until every last drop of that IP has been used. And... Okay, whatever. You know, I I think the first three seasons of that show, the first, actually four seasons of that show are remarkable. I think the last seven are bad. I think it became a very bad show. And it became a bad show because the intentions were not pure. Because they didn't end the run when they could have. They did not remain intellectually fresh. They did not make enough creative changes along the way. Um, and it just sort of became like, I don't know, another sci-fi show. I think of it in the same way I think of Battlestar Galactica, although Battlestar Galactica is a much more important show than Walking Dead ever was. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, whatever. Carol and Daryl aren't going anywhere. <laughs> I'm not upset. I don't watch the show anymore, and uh, I'm not going to watch any of these spinoffs. So I'm sorry to the Walking Dead fans, but... That show was supposed to be more. It was supposed to be the prince that was promised. It was just another Chicago fire. Cool. I don't know. People like that show. They still watch it. My mom loves it. And uh, plenty of people will watch the new Walking Dead shows as well. That's it. That's it for this edition of Culture. There were plenty of more news items, but geez, we're, uh, uh, come on. I I, I have tested your patience enough today. (laughs) I've talked about diversity. I've talked about pedophilia. I've talked about the Kardashians. You've earned this ending. All right. You've earned uh, the, the, this, uh, this shortened day of school. I'm going to let the class out five minutes early. Thanks for being here. Nonetheless, though, you know how much I love you. Join the discord for more discourse around 
topics like this. If you want to talk about movies, box office, controversy, cuties, I'm available. Hit up the Discord. Go to the website, toomanythoughtsmedia.com or tmt.media for short. Hit the Join Our Discord button on the sidebar. Get in on the action. Just pop over to that cultured feed and uh, type in your thoughts. I'd be happy to talk to you about whatever you feel like talking about. Um, And that'll do it. Subscribe to all of our shows. Movie Hall of Fame. Why is this a thing? Fantasy Book of the Month. Nostalgia Plus. All great shows, all worthy of your investment. Go to iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to each of those shows. Smash that subscribe button. Man, I love you so very, very much. And I do hope that you come back next week because you know what happens then. Well, we get cultured, of course. We get cultured! We get cultured!